Hey, Heritage. Hey, I want to just take a moment to greet everybody across our network. I want to uh, just say hello to the folks over in Bettendorf, to the men in Kiwani, to the people who are checking us out online, and of course, all of you, who, you here in Rock Island. Just want to say uh, welcome and greetings, and I think that we are in for a great, great time together as we continue in a series that we have been in the midst of for the past uh, four weeks, and uh, it's called Walking with Giants. Now, before we, we press into the series, allow me to pause just for a second because this is my first opportunity to serve in the capacity of a weekend communicator, and so there's a chance that some of you have no idea who I am. There's an even greater chance that people in Bettendorf have no idea who this strange face is that's looking at them. And so let me just uh, give a little bit of my own story just to give you maybe a little bit of a sense of who I am. My name's Josh Howard. I have been serving on staff at Heritage uh, as a Next Steps pastor, primarily based in Rock Island for about a year. It's hard to believe it's been a year already, but I've been here a year. And my history starts in the Quad Cities, was born and raised in uh, Moline and went to Moline High School. And, uh, and probably one of the most important parts of my story is that I have been attached to Heritage for as long as I can remember. My parents plugged into this church back in the late 70s. I was about one year old. And, uh, and I just have such fond memories of growing up in the context of this church. Uh, Silly memories, like I remember uh, when the church was back in the red brick building, uh, there we would play all kinds of stuff out in the front lawn, and I remember my first major injury happened when a ice ball disguised as a snowball hit me right in the lip and uh, cut it open. I had to go to the hospital to get stitches, and uh, so thanks to Heritage Family, I endured my first major injury. I don't know why this came to mind as I was thinking about sharing about some of my memories, but there was a closet in that red brick building that was attached to a classroom that was sort of under a stairwell, and the back uh, wall was sloped, and so in my and my friend's imagination, it felt like a cockpit, and we would go in there, and we would pretend that we were in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon, and we would, you know, pretend like we were Chewie, Han Solo, Luke Skywalker, dashing across the galaxy to save the princess. And if you were to go into that closet right now, you would see it would take a child's imagination to make that work. Uh, but that's just one of those memories that I have. I, I have a memory, lots of great memories of being connected to the youth group uh, at Heritage, where we would play a game called Sardines, which is sort of a nuanced version of, of hide, and, hide and seek, where the initial people would go hide, and then everybody that found them had to just cram into the space that they decided upon. And my favorite space to choose was the baptistry, which was uh, behind the stage at the time on a platform. There was like a, a false floor that covered it when it wasn't in use, and we would kind of slip under that lid, and then everybody would cram in once they found us. 30, 40 teenagers crammed into that space. Maybe not recommended in terms of smells, okay? <laughs> But it's just one of the memories that I have. Now, not all of the memories that I have are silly. Some of them are really important. I, we ran across this picture a while back. This is me in elementary school. Um, I don't really know how old I am. I don't know where the glasses came from. But I do know that this is in the basement of that red brick building, and I am in a Sunday school class in this picture at Heritage. And uh, you would think that it's Halloween time, but actually this talks about Valentine's Day. I don't know. But this is representative of thousands of moments when I plugged in, whether it was a Sunday school class, a worship service, midweek, Friday nights, youth events, camps, conferences, thousands of times when an adult would pour into me the love and grace of Jesus. I learned Jesus at this church. I was baptized 
at this church. I was called into ministry at a youth conference in Cincinnati, Ohio in 1990 because my youth group from Heritage went and I caught a ride with them. Almost every area of my current reality is somehow influenced and traced back to an influence at Heritage Church. Uh, it influenced the way, uh, the, where I went to college, which influenced who I met and married, influenced my kids, influenced different uh, employment opportunities. Everything about me is, is kind of launched from my time at Heritage. And so needless to say, uh, when the opportunities started to come about that I might be able to come back and serve as one of the pastors here, my heart started to soar because I wanted to put myself in a place where I could give back and pour back into this great community of believers that had given so much to me. And I, I gotta tell you, I've said this before from the platform here in Rock Island, but you are my tribe. I consider you my tribe, my family, my spiritual family. And I, I love you, I love this church, I love this community of believers. So it is a great honor to be standing here this morning and to be communicating God's word to you. Just in case you're curious, this is my family of four, a recent picture that we took on a vacation. My wife, Melissa, we've been married almost 19 years. She's a special education teacher in Davenport. Uh, my daughter, beautiful daughter, she's 15. She just finished uh, 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 driver's training. So we're in for a year of permit driving. We're all really excited about that. Uh, and then my son hates pictures, and that's the best one he's got in like a 10-day stretch of vacation. So he loves baseball. He loves video games. He's a great guy. That's where that's, I go home to these folks, love them so much. And so hopefully that just gives you a little bit of a sense of who I am. Maybe I'm less strange now or more strange. Whatever the case is, that's who I am. But we're not here to talk about me. We're here to press in and talk about the living God and his influence and effect for on our lives and purpose for our lives. And so I'm going to I'm going to start pressing back into the Walking with Giants series. We, we have been in this series. We've been looking at individual portraits. Pastor Sean has been looking at guys like Abel and Enoch and Noah, and we have been looking at how their faith in the Lord has helped them move into some extraordinary accomplishments all through the Lord's strength and power. And so we are going to pick up our portrait today is a guy by the name of Isaac. And I'm going to start with the foundational text, which is found in Hebrews 11, verse 20. If you have your Bibles, you can click there, you can turn there, it'll be in your notes, it'll be on the screen. But this is what we find in that verse. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. And that's it. Twelve words to this portrait. It is of all of the individualized and, and specialized portraits in Hebrews 11, that is the shortest one. But I don't want to give you the impression that there's nothing to learn from this or that, you know, because of its brevity, there's, there's not as much lessons to, 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 to kind of press into. That's not true at all. But I do think it's worth noting right up front that the author of Hebrews uses quite a bit of restraint in that depiction of Isaac's story. If you know, and many of you probably do, if you know the blessing story of Isaac and his sons Esau and Jacob, then you already know what I'm talking about. There's some high drama, high, high dysfunction in that particular story. And Hebrews 11.20 is very restrained in the retelling of that story. It's kind of a, a silly way to demonstrate this, but, but just bear with me. Any baseball fans in the room? Anybody that just hates baseball? Do you promise just to hang with me for a couple minutes? <laughs> 
Cub fans. Shout it out. Who's Cub fan? Yeah? Yeah? Okay. So let me, let me show you this picture. If, if someone were to ask you, Cub fans, to describe the 2016 World Series, you don't have to answer this out loud, but, but how would you answer? If someone was maybe under a rock for that season and they, they just didn't know about the series and they wanted to, to hear about the ins and outs of the series, how would you describe it? See, for me, I would want to get into the nitty-gritty, the drama, the pivotal moments. I'd want to talk about the Cubs being down 3-1 to one and winning the last three games, two on the road. I'd want to talk about Kyle Schwarber's miraculous reappearance. I'd want to talk about Game 7, where it looked like you had it in the bag, and then it didn't, and then it did. You know, I would want to go through all of those moments and just really press in to, uh, to all those high-drama moments in that series. How about Cardinal fans? Any Cardinal fans? Please say there's some. Yes, all right. How about this, the 2011 World Series? How would you describe that to someone who, who missed it? I mean, I would go straight to game six, David Freeze, and, and I would talk about being down to our last strike twice in that game, coming back, hitting the walk-off home run to force game seven, and then winning the series at home. I, I would want to get into those, those nitty-gritty details and the high-drama moments of those series if I were going to try to retell it to someone. But if we took our cues from the author of Hebrews and from how the author retells the story of Isaac, our response might come out very matter-of-fact if we're trying to retell these series. You know, like, tell me about the 2006 World Series. Oh, well, the Cubs won 4-3. to three. Okay. Tell me about the 2011 World Series. Oh, yeah, the Cards won in 7. You know, very matter-of-fact, like less than 12 words, and, and no drama. This is what we would get if we took our storytelling cues from the author of Hebrews. Now, please understand, I, this is not a criticism of the author of Hebrews. Please do not tell Pastor Sean that I ripped the author of Hebrews apart in my message. That's not exactly what I'm trying to do here. It's just an observation about how the author goes about telling the story. Hebrews 11.20 avoids all of the drama, and, and I do think, and we'll get into it later, there's good reasons why. So today, I want to take a moment to look at Isaac's story through the filter of, the 11, of Hebrews 11.20. And then the second half of our time together, I want to add a little bit of the drama back into the story because I think there's one very particular truth that's going to be very life-giving to us if we can understand it. And so let's go back to Hebrews 11.20. We're going to put it back up on the screen. And, and let's take a closer look at this. I think there's three words in this verse that help frame an opening truth statement. The three words are faith, blessed, and future. Now that first word, faith, that, that's kind of the no-brainer, right, of the series. That's the framing word of everything that we've been talking about in this series. And, and in fact, our task today is to explore the question of what did Isaac do that was so faithful? What did Isaac do to demonstrate significant faith? Now, the short answer is this. He was concerned about setting up his two sons and, and for them to receive the favor of the Lord according to God's will for their future. Specifically, he was concerned about passing on the covenant blessing to the next generation. Now, just to give you a little bit of context, the covenant blessing is, uh, is the promise that God gave to Abraham. Abraham is, is Isaac's dad, Isaac's father. And the covenant blessing and promise that God 
offered to Abraham was beautiful. It was majestic. It was, it was where God promised to make Abraham into a great nation. And in fact, he even used the, the illustration of your descendants will, will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. That's how great of a nation you will be. And, and then maybe the best part is the statement where, where God says, not only this, but all the families on the whole earth will be blessed because of the existence of your nation. And, and it's, a, it's this great covenant promise and blessing. Abraham passes it on to Isaac, and then Isaac is faithful and passes it on to the next generation. Now, there's a significant lesson for us here in Isaac's faithfulness, and that is this, that God honoring faith leads to actions that are future-minded and others-focused. God-honoring faith leads to actions that are future-minded and others-focused. And, and I should say this. I think it's really important that those two things stay together because I, I don't think it's enough just to, to dream about the future. I, I can dream about spending the rest of my life on a beach somewhere and, and reading John Grisham, but, but that doesn't really change anything. That doesn't really move the ball forward in kingdom work at all. So, so the distinguisher here, as displayed by Isaac, is that his focus on the future was on behalf of another human being, on behalf of the next generation. And he wanted to figure out what could he do to bring the Lord's favor to them. What we have to wrestle with is are we willing to dream dreams and to act on those dreams and would those dreams influence the next generation? Are we willing to invest our lives into being a blessing to the next generation. I remember a couple of years ago, I was serving at a small Wesleyan church, and we were really trying to move the ball forward and, and maybe change a little bit of the culture of the church. We, we were really wrestling with one central question. What type of a church were we going to hand off to our kids and our grandkids and their kids and their grandkids? Like, what were we going to hand off? And so we started talking about some of the changes we needed to make and and where we needed to go, and just all of those like nuances and, and implications and all those things. And I remember having a very specific conversation. I'll never forget it, actually. It left that kind of impression on me with an individual in the church who was really apathetic to the whole thing. It wasn't they weren't for it. They weren't against it. They were just, I don't care. And so I kind of drilled a little bit deeper into the conversation and found out why. And, and what this individual said was, I really don't care what we do because I'm going to be dead anyway. I'm not going to be here for it, so I don't care where it goes. And I, I kind of left that conversation shaking my head internally because the, the person was not able to remove themselves from their immediate circumstances. They weren't willing to take their mind into the future because they, they knew they weren't going to be there. And, and I'm convinced that this is how many churches can get stuck, that there is this inability to connect both a future-mindedness with an other's focus and so we just stay stuck with the immediate. And we, we get stuck because of how worried we are on how the, those immediate urgent details are landing on us. And, and we are so preoccupied with all of that that we, there, there's just no margin left to think about the future. And I think, friends, this is why I'm so excited about the bold moves that we're in in this season at Heritage. Many of them, if not all of them, have the potential to ripple, not just a year or two or three down the road. We are talking about a generational ripple, generation upon generation upon generation. And so all of these, these bold moves are, are highly future-minded, 
But that's not even what makes it the most special. The part that makes it special to me is that every single one of them are being done in order to help others cross both gaps, the sin gap and the second gap, and come to faith, freedom, and healing in Jesus. And that is what sets those bold moves apart. We're putting future and others together. And friends, that is really, really exciting to me to be back in this space in this season of the church and to watch what the Lord's going to do. Now, that's, that's the corporate reality, but there's an individual reality to this as well, that this framework, future plus others, has the potential of informing almost everything we do. I mean, parents in the room, this, this mindset helps us to become way more intentional about how we relate to our kids. How are we passing Jesus along to them? Grandparents, you're in a different stage of life, you're nuanced differently, but the question's the same. What can you do to change the trajectory of your family tree so that they might receive the grace and fullness of Jesus? This can touch your occupation, it can touch your hobbies, it can touch your relationships. This informs how we spend our time, how we leverage our giftedness, how we invest our dollars. And we ask the question, how can we leverage our lives as a blessing to and for the benefit of future generations? Now, I don't want these questions to get lost, but we need to change directions for a moment. So I I want kind of this, this focus, this future others focus to stay rolling around in your hearts and minds. But I think it's time that we go back to Genesis and we add the drama back into the story of Isaac and figure out what we can learn. And so allow me to set the pieces up by reading a snippet of Genesis 25, and it's here that we're introduced to four major characters. This is how it reads. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebecca, it's the second major player in the story, became pregnant. The babies, not baby, but babies, there's twins there, jostled uh, each other within her, And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to the Lord to inquire. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. So we have the principal players. We have Isaac, our faith hero. We have his wife, Rebecca. We have the two sons, twins, two boys. Esau is the oldest. Jacob is the youngest. And the scriptures let us in on two relational dynamics that begin to set up a fairly dramatic moment. The first is that these two boys, be, it becomes a rivalry. I mean, that's, that's kind of a normal brother thing anyway, but it, it becomes a struggle, a rivalry. And then to add kind of to the drama, the parents each kind of pick their own favorite in, in this dynamic. And, and Esau uh, is bonded very closely, the oldest, very closely with his dad, Isaac, And Rebecca connects very closely with the youngest, with Jacob. And so many years pass. Isaac grows old. He grows blind. And he feels led in a moment to officially pass the baton, the the blessing, the covenant blessing, along. And and remember, it's the same blessing that Abraham's passed to him. He wants to pass it along to the next generation. And in that time, in that age, The oldest was always chosen to receive like a double portion of the inheritance, to be set up as the the major influencer of the family tree. And so Isaac had every intention of presenting and extending this blessing to his oldest, to Esau. He was being faithful in his responsibilities as the head of the household, and so he calls a meeting with Esau. Now, Rebecca, 
She begins to sniff out what's going on. She's concerned. She wants Jacob to get this. And so she concocts this plan, this, this, this deception, that would take advantage of Isaac's blindness. He's not able to see and would allow Jacob to steal the blessing right out from under Isaac and Esau. And so long story short, basically she takes advantage of a very short window of opportunity, dresses Jacob up as Esau, and proceeds to deceive Isaac and get the firstborn blessing. If you're curious, this is what Jacob's blessing sounds like. It's a good one. May God give you of heaven's dew and of earth's richness an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and people bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. Now that's, that's the firstborn blessing, but that leaves Esau. He receives sort of the leftovers, the secondary blessing. Not as good. Let's take a look at that one. Your dwelling will be away from earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. Now, as you can imagine, this deception begins to just unravel the entire family. Esau begins to desire revenge. I mean, death threats are introduced into the story. There is this very real danger that Jacob might lose his life to his brother. And eventually he runs away, runs far away for many years, which saves his life. And for many, many years, the family remains in a fractured state of reality because of this one event. Now, I got to tell you, my heart goes out to Isaac in this story. He had fully intended for that covenant blessing to go to his firstborn, his favored son. He had probably even dreamed of the day when he would have that meeting, that, that day where he would extend the blessing. He probably dreamed of hopefully being able to live long enough to even see Esau lean into that firstborn blessing and become the, the man and the leader of the family that, 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 he, that Isaac thought he would be. And to have that removed as a reality must have been heartbreaking. And not only that it was removed, but how it was removed. That it was a deception by his very own wife, a deception by his very own son. I'm sure that the disappointment hung heavy upon Isaac's heart. And try to put yourself into that situation. You know, here is Isaac, and your favored son just gets tricked out of inheritance, out of a covenant blessing, and that son wanted to pursue revenge. You know, how, how would you react to that? I, I almost feel like there might be a portion of my soul, maybe this speaks more about my character, but there may be a portion of my soul that was, would be like, go ahead and exact revenge. I mean, he, he's kind of a punk and he deserves this, you know? Or, or there may be a part of me that just wants to withdraw, like just wash my hands of the whole thing, say, you guys are all screwed up. I don't want anything to do with this. I, I don't know how, how Isaac may have been tempted to react to the situation, but he doesn't act out against his family. It's, that's not what happens. In fact, in Genesis chapter 28, we get this profound, this beautiful picture of doing the right thing even in the midst of disappointment. It's a moment when Isaac has this, this really beautiful follow-up interaction with Jacob. It's, it's closely, it, it follows almost immediately after the actual deception. And instead of lashing out at him, instead of chastising him, instead of telling him that 
He wished that he could take the blessing back instead of telling him that he wished that he was never born. Anything that, that you know, could have been hateful or hurtful to say. He, he, he doesn't say any of those things. He actually chooses to double down on the blessing. He responds gracefully in control of his emotions and in a spirit of love. And I want you to take a look at this. He restates the blessing over Jacob. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now live as an alien, the land God gave to Abraham. And that kind of brings us right up to where Hebrews 11.20 leaves us. And hopefully at this point, we all have a bit of an appreciation for just how restrained Hebrews 11.20 is. Remember the 12 words, right? By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. And that recap removes all the drama. Now let me, let me speculate a little bit here, okay? I begin to wonder if that restraint was intentional from the author from this standpoint. Maybe the author of Hebrews just wants us to understand that Isaac, in faith, did the right thing at the right time regardless of what was going on around him. You know, regardless of circumstances, regardless of how it turned out, he took care of what he was called to take care of, that future other's focus of passing the blessing on, to set his sons up for future success, success according to God's will. Isaac was demonstrating faith. He was demonstrating obedience regardless of who was receiving the central blessing. Now, another thought occurred to me in terms of the restraint of this passage. I kind of wonder if there's a lesson here about the reality that we can be completely faithful in all of our actions and life can still fall apart around us. And God doesn't necessarily look at the results, particularly if he sees your faithfulness going into the situation. He will still credit that to you as faith and as righteousness. And, and that is super encouraging to me to think about it from that standpoint. But friends, I gotta tell you, I think we need to add the drama in the story because it helps us understand something important about all of our journey. And it's summed up in this truth statement. Faith is being obedient even in the midst of disappointment. Faith is being obedient even in the midst of disappointment. You know, faith is doing the right thing, doing the thing that God has called you to do, regardless of of, of if there's betrayal or disappointment or deception or confusion or criticism, et cetera, et cetera. See, I, I think that Isaac probably had to contend with two types of disappointment. Of course, he had, to disappoint, he had the disappointment with others, with his family members. But I wonder if he was ever tempted in this whole family dynamic to begin to grow disappointed with God. I wonder if he began to ask the why question right? Why, God, would you allow this to happen to me? Why, why would you allow this situation to fracture my family for years? And, and regardless of the type of disappointment that Isaac may have felt, he kept doing the right things at the right times, and this was credited to him as faith and as righteousness. Now, we've all dealt with disappointment. Everybody in the room has dealt with disappointment. I, I remember a very specific situation in my life that happened about three years ago 
where my wife started to undergo some really strange, like health, physical type things, where over the course of about two or three weeks, she basically lost feeling in different parts of her body except for her head. It affected everything. It started at her waist, and it rolled down her legs to her toes to her feet. It affected her walking for a season. It led up down there, and then it started to come up, up through her chest, her stomach, her shoulders, and down to her hands. She still doesn't have complete feeling in her fingertips. And it, it started this journey for us as a family, going to doctors and trying to figure out what in the world is going on. And there was a lot of different, you know, curveballs and different doctors and scenarios. But about a year after the initial symptoms, uh, the, the diagnosis landed on my family that my wife has MS. And that was really, really hard for me. It came at a time when I was hitting, I was, it was a double whammy. It was, we got this news about Melissa, and it was a really hard ministry season for me. And, and I got to tell you that I struggled very, very mightily with disappointment. And I struggled very, very much with being disappointed in God. And I, I know that this may sound really entitled, but I began to ask the question, God, why would you do this? Why would you allow this to happen to a family that has served you for the better part of 15, 16 years in ministry? It wasn't a great moment in my life, but I was in a tremendous amount of pain and confusion, and the enemy was right there, whispering in my ear and attempting me to, 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 to lure me into the, the cycle that Pastor Sean talked about last week of isolation and fear and victim mentality, and friends, I have to confess that for a season, it worked, and I was not in a good space, and I battled through seasons of discouragement, I battled through, I, I feel like I even touched on seasons of, of absolute depression, and I began to isolate myself, and I began to cut myself off emotionally, and, and I found it really hard for a long stretch of time to unbury myself emotionally. And it took a, a season, it was a long stretch, of relearning God's love, his character, his purpose. It took a stretch of time for me to relearn who I am in him. It took a season of remembering that no one, no one is exempt from disappointment and pain and confusion. Not even Jesus was exempt from that. And it took remembering that even in the midst of pain, and maybe especially in the, the, the midst of pain, God provides comfort and presence and strength. And over a season of time, I was able to dig out, but it was a really, really difficult road. And I, I kind of thought this week about, you know, what I went through and what, what Isaac was sort of wrestling with here. And I mean, he would have had the same temptation, right? I mean, he would have been tempted to be lured into that victim mentality, the fear of isolation, to, to pull away from everyone who disappointed him, to pull away from Rebecca, to pull away from Jacob. Eventually Esau do, started doing some strange things too, to pull away from Esau. But friends, I just don't see signs within the text that give us a clue that he allowed himself to be sucked in to that spiral. And that demonstrates strong faith to me. And it, it gives me hope that there is strength to be found in the midst of trouble that allow us to step into obedience and to be persistent in doing what is right. Now, because all of us in this room have faced disappointment, this is really a universal call. An important facet of our faith journey is to continue to do the right thing regardless 
of, of what we're in the middle of, regardless of whether we're in the middle of extreme pain, disappointment, and confusion. Faith calls us to be concerned about another person, even when that other person has hurt us. Faith calls us to care about a generation that maybe we've never even met, and, and even if it's in the midst of not understanding how God has taken us there to, to do what he's called us to do. Faith is standing fast in the midst of life's storms. It is something that Isaac models beautifully for us, and it's a truth, honestly, that can only be discovered if we add the drama back into his story. Now, all of this kind of comes to a head when we get to the so what moment of the sermon. It brings us, it's very short and sweet. It's not easy, simple, but not easy. Two reflection questions that I want to leave with you for you to kind of wrestle with God about. Here's the first one. How can you leverage your life for the benefit of future generations? You know, just like Isaac, right? How can you press into a future plus others mindset? How can you bless someone in such a way that it would change their trajectory? I'm thinking about the bold moves here at, at Heritage Church. I mean, how, how can you begin to leverage your own giftedness and your energy into one of those bold moves in order to move the ball forward in some tangible way? I was thinking this week, it would be really great if generations down the road, uh, that it would be written of us, kind of borrowing from Hebrews 11:20 language, but it would be great if it was written of us that by faith, Heritage Church blessed the Quad Cities in regard to their future. I think that would be amazing for us to be known as a church that blessed the entire cities in regards to their future. The second question, a little bit more personal and maybe more difficult, but it looks like this. What disappointment do you need to surrender to God? What step of obedience have you delayed because you are fear, you, you fear getting hurt again. Maybe there's a place in your life where you are being heavily tempted to move into a cycle of victim mentality and isolation and fear. And the call today, friends, is to begin to hand that over to the Lord and to cling to the truth about who he is, who you are in him, and to allow him to lead you back to health and freedom and greater purpose. I am so thankful for Isaac's story. I am thankful to see the power of how a leveraged life for the future can make a, a tremendous difference. I, I love to see the power of persistence even in the midst of disappointment. And I really do think, friends, that if we get this right, if we can get the whole future plus others and, and mix it in with being able to be persistent in chasing that dream, even in the midst of disappointment, that I think that generations down the road, they will look at us and that we will be found faithful. That is my prayer for this church and that is my prayer for us as individuals. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we thank you so much for your mercy in dealing with us and giving us these, um, these stories. You know, I, one of the things I love about the scriptures is that there is no, there's no whitewashing uh, over these stories. They, they are messy and they are real and they get to the heart of real human drama. Whereas I feel like other, there, there's attempts in other places to kind of clean that stuff up and pretend like there's nothing wrong. And I, I pray, God, that you would use the story of Isaac and his family to give each of us hope 
that there is strength to be found in the midst of disappointment and that you would, through his example, that you would give us a greater perspective of a dream for the future that is connected with a love for others and that we would begin to work towards changing the trajectory of the next generation, that we would work towards helping them receive everything God wants for them and what he wants to do through them. And I pray, God, that you would just help us lean into that with everything that we are. Lord, thank you so much for your great love for us. We are, we are so thankful for your mercy and your forgiveness and your freedom. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.